From a childhood of rural hardship and tragedy to the heights of Midwest wrestling fame, today we talk about the Nebraska Tiger Man, John Pesek. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, we're back, you're back, we're together again, you missed us, we missed you. And what on earth am I even rambling about already out of the gate? I'm just excited, I'm excited about this episode. My name is Nick Gossert, I am a pro wrestling booker, I am a pro wrestling promoter, I'm occasionally a ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and that's the name of the show, Pro Wrestling History Nerds, the only wrestling podcast so cool that if you play it backwards, the devil tells you that pro wrestling fucking rules. And I am here, as always, with the uh, Azazel to my Belial, if we're going to go in the, that weird uh, direction, it's Shago Bronson. How's, how the hell are you, man? Dude, I'm super stoked, and I now I have to go go like you know uh, go pull like a, a, a end of, a dark side of the moon uh, over the rainbow combo and and see see what happens when we play it backwards. I need to be spoken to as we speak right now to the people. Welcome to the Hippodrome Express. Yep, and like the the dark side of the moon, if you lay this podcast over all the celebrity sex tapes you can find on the internet, you are gonna just have a very confusing experience, but I think you're gonna enjoy it on both levels. So what we are doing today, like we do every day when we are here, is we discuss the deep, rich history of professional wrestling. We've been talking about you know, men like Georg Lurich and Alexander Aberg and, uh, you know, Joe, uh, Joe Stetcher, these men who kind of bridged this weird gap, this almost dark age, or as some historians would call late antiquity, of what happened after the Gotch-Hackenschmidt match kind of collapsed to the wrestling scene in America and how it rebuilt, how it reformed, how it restructured, and pushed on into what we call professional wrestling today. And it's a gold mine of untapped deep dives of the history of pro wrestling. The gap in between what is considered, you know, the Gotch, Hackenschmidt end of an era and the beginning of what grew to be the modern territory era. The, what we are doing right now, man, this is, this is historically important work, old chap. We are, we are doing the deep informational, you know, plunges into the into the murk and we are finding out things and bringing things to light to the people that have never been put on wax and we're and when we appreciate all the you know uplifting comments we get about that stuff because you know this really is fascinating and frankly because they got away with so much back then there's some cool shit that we are about to get into today and I always want to give the disclaimer that, you know, we are doing the best we can with the information we can find. Uh, sometimes you might hear a story a different way. You might have heard an oral tradition from somebody else about how this happened or this was the motivation or this which is what was backstage. And a lot of that is conjecture both one way and the other. Um, you know, like, like today, the gentleman we're going to be discussing, uh, I got a lot of this information from his grandson who wrote a book about him. So you get a little bit of, I would definitely say a little bit of a subjective slant when you do that, when you're talking about your, your own grandfather, the a man you loved as opposed to a man known as a psychopath who nearly blinded a man. And it, so there's the, it's, it's the Rochamon effect. Some people tell the story this way, some people tell the story that way. Doesn't necessarily mean they're not both true or both wrong. 
It's just the downside of storytelling as a concept. And who the hell are we talking about tonight? We are talking about the Nebraska Tiger Man, John Pesek. And you may remember him in the story we did about Wayne Munn. He was kind of a background character earlier on because he was absolutely vicious on the mat. He was a guy who, if you had to face him and he was mad at you, you were in for a tough night, a tough couple weeks of recovery. It was going to be a bad scene for you. But this is one of those guys where, you know, when we kind of started looking at things, you, you look at a guy like this and wonder, how is this guy not a, you know, mentioned in the same name as like an Ed Strangler Lewis or such? Because so many of these guys just kind of faded to the background, even though the wrestling world would not have been what it was without them. Well, sometimes the missing ingredient is that sort of like, cultural pop sprinkle in the way that a person is represented and celebrated outside of the bubble of that of their medium of artistic greatness i mean when you talk about a bad motherfucker and you talk about uh, effective and mean motherfucker and somebody whose resume and their their accomplishments stack up with many of the all-time greats but they just it happened in, like we've said, the dark ages. This hasn't really been brought to light yet. So hopefully we can put a little respect on the name of the Nebraska Tiger Man because we're not talking about um, Tiger King from 2020. No, and respect is due to this man, even from a young age. Because this guy's story is is absolutely bonkers. Uh, John Pesek was born February 3rd, 1893 on a farm outside Ravenna, Nebraska. His parents were both Czech-speaking immigrants born in Bohemia. Bohemia was a Czech-speaking duchy of Moravia and part of the Austrian Empire that collapsed after World War One. Kind of a story very similar when we talked about Joe Stetcher, another first-generation American born of Bohemian parents. And Pesek's parents, Martin and Anna, were a part of the Bohemian integration uh, first-generation community that populated much of the area as railroad-adjacent land was plentiful and cheap, though it required much hard work to maintain and make any use of. Even in the late 1800s, it was a tough time to carve out a living on the prairie. The land was often unforgiving. The nearest neighbor could be at least a mile away. Plumbing, electricity, and a telephone might as well be science fiction. And if something went badly, as life often does, a doctor could be a full day's journey away by horse-drawn wagon. Well, one thing we have learned from Conan the Barbarian to countless other examples is... Uh hard-ass circumstance when you are coming up and you're a child and your family's going through shit and you have to, like, be brought up and survive despite that, those are the conditions that, that can create a champion. And I think we might be smelling something like that here, brother. Exactly. Because in these days, in this place, you had to grow, gather, or hunt your own food. You had to forage for fuel to burn for warmth in the freezing Nebraska winters. If you've ever been in Nebraska in the winter, it is not a good place to be whatsoever. And this was all on you. This was all on your family. It was still Little House on the Prairie time in many, many ways. Sanitation could become an issue after one dump in the wrong part of the river. It was hard, it was bleak, and alcoholism and suicide rates were through the roof. Yeah, one thing that's uh, not really appreciated in the fact the amount of alcoholism from previous eras was 
Alcohol was safer to drink in a lot of circumstances than water. Water wasn't, I mean, at this point, the, the practice of boiling water was, was pretty normalized, but just as a normal practice, if you had liquor, you knew it was safe to drink. If you had water, you weren't necessarily sure that it was absolutely good to go. And little known fact, a pint of bourbon over a bowl of Lucky Charms, absolutely fantastic for breakfast. Oh yeah, that's what I had before the show, old chap. Makes a lot of sense. Yes. And... <laughs> Martin and Anna had seven children, which was the custom at the time, especially in rural areas where you needed all the help you can get, and assumed that a quarter of all children born weren't going to make it past the age of 10. We often joke about life in these days being very Oregon Trail, but the Pesic family took that to new heights. In 1900, their team of horses were killed by a lightning strike. Boom! Tactical strike from the heavens themselves, and nothing left but horseshoes and barbecue. What in the name of H.P. Lovecraft is, is kind of that sort of terrible circumstance from the gods, man? That is awful. What do you, what do you think if you're just like a simple, you know, prairie farm person, and the lightning comes down and strikes your horse dead? Yeah, and this is their entire team. I mean, I joke, but that's fucking horrifying. Just think of how much horses are relied upon on a farm at that time, let alone the fact that they're, you know, they're, they're horses that didn't want to get struck by lightning. I can guarantee you that if they had an option, they would have not chosen that, uh, that, that way to go. And then in 1902, Charlie, John's uh, seven-year-old brother, nearly had his foot cut off by a mower and would limp for the rest of his life. And that is a bad turn of events when you are a farm kid. Yeah, these are like advanced, like you needed Game Genie to unlock these sort of brutal endings to your Oregon Trail level because <laughs> these are some really messed up ways to go, man. And it keeps getting better. Uh, so in Awful. 1906, a freak storm broke out and a cyclone destroyed their house. <sighs> That's right. Living that far from the city and any form of help and their fucking house was torn to pieces and completely destroyed. John, age 13 at the time, was actually picked up by the storm and carried across the property before being dumped in a field, somehow unhurt aside from a few cuts and bruises. And if you think that homeowner's insurance is covering any of that shit in those days, think the fuck huh. again. One, like, good thing the horses were already dead because they would have got killed again. And two, at what point do you wonder who you pissed off? Because now that's like two acts of God upon thy property. Like, you are, that is a rough message. So I love the way that this guy internalized that because that, that could tell uh, you could definitely take that and interpret that in a much different way. And so they had to begin making trips to Ravina by horse-drawn wagon to gather supplies to rebuild their house. And this was clearly time-consuming and expensive. Almost 20 miles each round trip, even with a wagon. And this was an all-day venture, all day long, every day. And that is just exhausting and risky and you, you, because if you're building your house and you're going to town every day, you're not doing what the farm needs to do to be a successful farm. And if your farm's not successful, you don't get to eat food. Yes, and not to put the carriage before the horse or beat a dead horse, but their horses died. So then their house blew up and then they had to get new horses to go get supplies to build a new house. This is like... Dude, they're paying high interest rate on that credit card before they can get any yield off the farm, man. That's got to suck. Good thing they have all those kids, though. 
And it, it honestly, it gets even worse. Oh, and no. sadly, on a trip back, only a quarter mile from the house, a wagon wheel slipped and the wagon flipped over and the load of lumber landed on Martin Pesek, breaking his neck and killing him. His family heard the noise, but didn't think anything of it until after nightfall when their father didn't come home and went to investigate. So now it's a single mom with a gaggle of teenagers to run a farm and rebuild a house, which they somehow managed to do. And this always, when I read this, I hate that the only thing I could think of is the chimney story from the movie Gremlins. <laughs> that's best. Oh, that's bad. It's, 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 it's aptly accurate. I mean, yeah, this is about as awful of like gets. You know, the woman is left with all the kids out in the wilderness and is a fend for us. Like, this is bad, man. Yeah, it's it's not an easy way to do it, but it was unfortunately more common than than you know you would you would think at that time when we look back on things because again this is the you step on a nail well congrats you're, you're you you get a die of tetanus you uh you know you 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 sprain your your uh, your knee and you can't uh, you know carve the plow out well now we don't know if there's going to be enough grain to last the winter it was an unforgiving time we still think of it almost like modern times but it really really wasn't it was still in that pre-world war one lack of rapid technological advancements medical advancements so this was a tough time to do anything and at the toughest place possible to do it but here's the thing as we've discussed so many times about so many wrestlers what turns a, a motherfucker into the toughest son of a bitch across the across the uh, the, the the whole spectrum growing up on a farm because yep. farm life makes you tough it makes you mentally tough it makes you physically tough it makes you tough in ways that a coach and a weight program cannot yeah farm life and then also just abject uh tragedy and malevolence and exposure to that at an early age you know you gotta have that healthy dose of like Bruce Wayne parent syndrome to like internalize it and focus it the right way. And then the farm work ethic, it's just, it's the breeding ground for monsters, man. Yeah, we've seen that everyone from from Evan Lewis to Farmer Burns to uh, you know do do you know Matt Hughes. I mean, yeah, it's, Brock Lesnar. Yeah, it's how many farm boys? Because it's you get that that you know you can't quit because if you quit, you starve. If you quit, you lose the land. You, there's no I'm tired. There's no I wish I could take today off. Nope, it's seven days of toil, sun up to sundown, and that just turns you into a determined, often very embittered and angry person. And you know what's a great way to take that out? On another human being. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's almost an identical description of the ideal mindset of competitive wrestling. Because yeah, it's it you know because this is a an, a nonstop season of growth of hard work of farming of plowing and at the end of this was the threshing season which was where the grain and the plant is separated by hand or by a machine and it's a massive undertaking that a family simply couldn't do alone so there were teams of professionals that would arrive in the area and handle most of the small farms at once there would be camps of these professional threshers who like to have fun and blow off steam after a day in the fields so that meant drinking gambling and of course wrestling and the older boys though still teens would join in the festivities probably drawn to possible father figures with these workers and john was an absolute prodigy at wrestling quickly learning how to best grown men in these informal affairs must much like evan lewis and farmer burns did at that same age yeah one thing that is a great determining factor in brilliant 
uh, output at an early age in competitive sport is being the younger younger brother or the younger sibling. When you have older brothers and siblings and, and competitive parents in that field, you see it where, you know, the last time the United States put a wrestler in the Olympics out of high school, it was because he had six older brothers and a dad that were all competitive wrestlers and his dad was like a professional coach. And he hadn't even wrestled in college yet, but the, that level of, of – Iron sharpens iron, and being raised in that environment can really bring out the true prodigies. Yeah, especially somebody like this who, you know, he he's living a man's life. He's a, he is a teenager, but he's living a man's life. Totally. And then he hangs out with these other actual men, and you can't help but being a little bit of, oh, you think I'm a kid? Well, let's fucking do this. You know, there's that chip on the shoulder to try to show that he belongs, and by out-wrestling full fucking grown men... He did that pretty damn well. And at the end of the threshing season, when the harvest was complete, there would be a carnival to celebrate all the hard work. Rides, animal acts, even the occasional moving picture show. At one such carnival, an acrobat watched a young John Pesek attempt a trick that he saw and was so impressed that he took him aside to teach him a few tricks. Mostly beginner stuff to build core, neck, and wrist strength. Exercises that would pay off in his future career as a wrestler. Though, it's a different day when a young man could go missing at a carnival, be lured away by a carny, and nobody panicked and asked if his bathing suit area got touched and if they should call the police. And that is why we were born at the wrong time, old chap. Because clearly, if we wanted to run away with the circus, they'd be putting out the APB. But Chongo digresses. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a correlation we see a lot, where strongman basic techniques and fundamentals are passed along through, you know, circus strongmen's of various type, whether that's jugglers or acrobats or, or gymnasts or old school strong men there was a lot more of a crossover in the fitness culture as just sort of a general thing back then so we see that with a lot of our our our, our deep dives the focuses where some of their initial introductions into actually learning what's up with performance and training coming from other circus strongmen sideshow performer types. Yeah, the overlap was very, very deep because you would have all these guys from Europe who came from that gymnasium culture where you would go and you'd learn to lift weights and do gymnastics and ride a bicycle and, you know, create a cheerleading pyramid and to wrestle and to box. And that's just what you did all at once. So the core of athleticism for all these things had the same base. So if an acrobat taught you how to develop core strength, wrist strength, neck strength, well, guess what? That's going to translate very well over into wrestling and into you know, developing yourself physically and that whole circus strongman type of strength. And he learned it from some weird, strange acrobat who just saw him trying to do a handstand at the carnival outside the, uh, the, the threshing uh, you know, camp or wherever the heck this thing was held. So he got very strong, very young, very determined. He was a wrestling prodigy. And his first public match was in 1912, winning two straight falls over William Hosick at Tom McCarthy's Upstairs Gym in Ravina, which almost sounds like it should be some sort of weird spaghetti restaurant. But that's where he made his first debut, two straight falls. He's got his first win in, the, in front of an audience. And he is already off to a great start because a lot of people have lost their first fight and went on to do well but until you get when you get that first victory right out of the gate that psychologically means the world 
Yeah, I I would imagine, and I I don't know this firsthand, but with based on the the nuggets of information we've already uncovered on his life, I would imagine this is a person who maybe finds a little bit of a deeper meaning in things. I mean, he literally got picked up out of his house by a tornado and was unharmed in a storm that destroyed his house. Maybe that gives you a little bit of a hubristic confidence going into a wrestling. This is just a man. God couldn't throw me off and couldn't get the five-point takedown. This guy is just a person. Makes me wonder, like, later in his years, if he ever looked back and was like, if I knew then what I know now, I could have out-wrestled that tornado. Yeah, totally, right? Like, yes. That tornado totally screwed me by playing the points. And... Things just kept going well for him. On April 5th, 1913, he had his second match against Ed Dutch Thiessen, who was a local pro baseball player with a wrestling background. There was always a lot of that sports overlap, and the match ended in a draw. But when you are still a teenager uh, taking on a uh, you know grown man who's a pro athlete, a draw, nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, and keep in mind, back then, baseball absolutely the a sport in the world right oh, in america at that time so we're talking about the best pro athletes america has are the pro baseball players and let's see if i can get through this one with a straight face up next was a match against john pasutska on february 5th at the uh, swastika club which he won and earned the $50 purse. Keep in mind, a swastika meant a whole different yes, fucking thing back pre -World in Pre-World War II. Ooh, Pre-World War One. This is... Oh, okay, this, even better. This is, a, this is a time where that was a whole different, uh, yeah. you know, whole different fucking thing. Very cringe now, but uh, at the time, it made a little more sense, but only a little. And his next one, he stepped up a level of competition and venue with a match at the Ravina Opera House against Young Dean from Ohio, which Pesek won. Apparently, two of his brothers boxed each other in the preliminary exhibition, but that's where you go from the, the, the bar room, the backstage, to a proper big venue, you know, which is a, again, it's a, it's a huge, a huge step to take as a young professional combatant. Yeah, and also shout out to Young Dean. <laughs> Young Dean. Yeah, I love some of the names people <laughs> had back then, like the work names. Young Dean. Oh, how young is he? He's 47 at this point. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> and he was starting to make a name for himself. His name was starting to make waves in the Midwestern wrestling scene. And in 1915, the Canadian light heavyweight champion Clarence Eklund called out Pesek with an ad in the Ravina News. The match took place on September 5th of that year in an outdoor match with a canvas spread over the grass at the park. And that's something, you know, again, that's pretty impressive when you get to the point where the people up above you in the rankings call you out. Yeah, that's not that's totally. not that's not you knocking on the door and talking a bunch of shit to get your foot in there. It's the guy at the top of the ladder going, "That guy, I got to see what he's made of." Yep, because when they have their pick of their litter of the dance partner that they want to have, and they're calling you out when you're climbing, that's because one, they think you got something to bring to the table as a draw and as an opponent in a matchup, and two, they're probably trying to get a get an upper hand psychologically on you earlier in your career before you're fully formed because if they're going to get a shot at you it's now before you get to the top and you get that true confidence and in this match Pesic was very nervous and not because he felt outmatched or felt like he, he couldn't pull this off it's because this was his first match in front of just the general public in an outdoor event and he was not wearing a shirt and there were <gasps> ladies present what I know it's again funny to think about these type of days where it's like you know, a man was walking around shirtless when women were present. Oh, my faints. 
But I will say this. I personally kind of can relate to this because I remember the first time I fought without a shirt on, it was a weird experience. You know, if you don't train the exact way you're going to fight, even the littlest things can throw you off. Like if you're, you're used to training in a t-shirt and you're used to, and then you, that absorbs sweat and it feels differently on your skin. And then, you know, you don't have anything to like wipe your eyes off uh, when you're getting sweat in them because you don't have the shoulder of your shirt there. It's like even like little minor adjustments like that can make it a weird experience. Uh, my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, I guess, in my imagination, I just assumed everyone at this era had either, like, the Andre the Giant single strap or, like, the Daniel Day-Lewis uh, Gangs of New York sort of, like, high-tied scarf waist gimmick. Yeah, you know? it's kind of like the, uh, the 1915 tournament where they initially wanted them to wear jerseys, almost like football players, to keep the nipples uh, hidden away from the, the, the gentle women who might not be able to emotionally process such a sight. Scandal! Scandal! And according to the September 10th Ravina News, Eklund won the first fall with a pin after more than 40 minutes of wrestling and, quote, he resorted to every tactic known to a skilled wrestler. And after the 10-minute rest, they went back at it for more than half an hour before the match ended in a draw by mutual agreement. The crowd, for some reason, had no problem with it, strangely enough, because Eklund put over Pesic in a big way, declaring that in all his experience, he never met an amateur who was Pesic's equal. And that's a really weird thing to be like, hey, uh, we've been doing this for a while. You want us to call it good? Let's call it good. Think these people will be mad because uh, they paid to see it? Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, the, the other side of that, though, is they already fought for an hour and ten total minutes. So I do totally organically buy that the audience would be like, yeah, okay, we're good. You guys are good. Like we, the action is stalled. Everybody's completely blown. I, I could see where the audience has just been grind it down to the point where they would accept that oh, finish. Oh, fully. And Eklund was pure sportsman babyface material with a clean wrestling strategy and never saying an unnecessary bad word about anyone. He had a big influence on Pesic, training him off and on for a few years and giving him one of the greatest gifts a combat athlete can receive, an education in conditioning and sharpening up his wrestling skills with better techniques. So he was so impressed with this guy. It was like the Farmer Burns, Frank Gotch relationship type yeah. of thing where he's like, oh, this kid's, he's got all the natural tools. I'm going to invest in him emotionally and time and energy wise. I'm going to teach him how to sharpen up his techniques and teach him how to turn that nat natural young athleticism into unstoppable trained athleticism. Yeah, this guy smelled a winner a mile away because he, he went from calling him out in the paper to I'm gonna take you under my wing, kid, and teach you about conditioning even though I asked for the match to be stopped. That's some like four stripe white belt teaching teaching you a move right before you tap if I ever drop. Oh, absolutely. Ever saw it. That's funny. Yeah, and the two would remain friends all their lives. And this match drew the attention of Martin Slattery, a real estate man and bar owner in Shelton, Nebraska, who convinced Pesic to take him on as a manager. I'm not sure what Slattery knew about wrestling, but he knew showbiz. He got Pesic wearing suits, taught him more sophisticated social etiquette than one typically picks up on the farm. He got him professional promo picks for posters and newspapers. And and heck, even a few decent matches to boot. And these matches came early in his career, and because he had that good press presentation, he didn't need to spend years barnstorming across the Midwest trying to get his name out there with circus shows. So he 
caught the eye of the right guy at the right time who walked in and said, I'll make a star out of you, kid. Yes, I, please, tell, please tell me that um, he was able to, convey, to turn that over into like the hometown babyface gimmick in Nebraska because what I'm seeing is... People who have an eye for talent are gravitating to this guy. Oh, yeah. No, he, he was white hot out of the gate. Yeah. Everybody, in, you know, as we'll see. They're lining up to work with him. Yeah. Every, as we'll see, like, pretty much everything he's doing is going to be within the uh, the state uh, state lines of Nebraska. You know, the locals, the, the Czech immigrant population. He got a lot of people behind him that wanted to see him do well, and he had the tools to take it to the next level when he, those doors got opened for him. Totally. And one of the most notable Shelton matches was against Joe Bills, another ball player, but this time he was also a Farmer Burns student. After a few wins, there was an attempt to get a rematch booked between Eklund and Pesek, but Eklund was too busy, so they put him in with Jake Ammond, who beat Pesek in two straight falls. Pesek was reportedly pale and weak-looking. It was later discovered that he went out to wrestle with a broken rib. Can you try to imagine doing, like, a five-minute match, let alone a possibly two-hour-long catch wrestling match with a broken fucking rib? Oh, yeah, that's that sounds excruciating. A broken rib means that you are getting... You are literally feeling a stabbing pain every time you try to take a breath past the minimal expanse of your rib cage. It literally... You're stabbing yourself to get air. And that creates less air over time. Your heart rate goes up. You feel panicked like you're not getting enough. It sucks, man. Yeah, you can't rotate. You can't pull in. You can't. It's brutal. You you could get perfect underhooks on a guy, and you cannot pull in because those muscles that you're using to pull a guy in on a grip is pulling those two broken pieces of that bone together, and it's excruciating. If you ever want a good and very accurate laugh, uh, uh, Ben Roy, great local comedian friend of ours, has a bit about uh, trying to poop with a strained rib, Oof. and it's as as awful as it uh, as, as it might sound. And that wasn't even trying to wrestle a competitive man with a broken rib. Yeah, and a farm bur- farmer burn student. And this is one of those things where, yes, it's like he did get that first loss. But I think from a psychological level, it's a lot easier to accept your first loss if there is a clear cut, I shouldn't have actually been in there, because that will often fire you up even more. That, that makes you mad. It makes you go, I, should have fucking, I shouldn't have done the match, but I, if, I, if I was healthy, I'd fucking beat him. So as soon as I'm healthy, I'm going to beat this motherfucker. Oh, yeah. It gives you that psychological one-up that you get to cash in if you get that rematch, because you'd really know, for, especially if you truly know in your heart of hearts that, like, you were not able to perform to your peak and that was the difference, then yeah, you got that motherfucker's number when you get that rematch for sure. And a rematch was booked as a handicap match soon after Pesek healed up and steamrolled both Jack Rose and Al Mantel. And in May of 1916, Jake Amend had to throw Pesek twice in an hour to win $200 as part of that handicap match. I assume he thought it was easy money having already beaten an injured Pesek. It wasn't even close. John Pesek outright toyed with Amend, breaking every hold he could throw at him and then putting Amend in body locks that he could not escape. So this was a situation where not only did he come in and beat the guy, he beat the guy with style. He did it in a way to make sure he that his opponent knew, yeah, you beat me while I was hurt, healthy, I'm gonna toy with you and you will have nothing to give me in return. Yep, and those are the little psychological mechanisms that 
differentiate champions. Those ways of that he turned that loss into a motivator and a psychological tool to actually have more confidence the next time they fought. And you, that's, I am frankly not surprised at all by that outcome. Yeah, it's like, I remember, remember was it Roy Jones Jr. who would do the behind the, the back? Totally. Into, into a jab where he'd put his hand behind his back and just boom, from, from that low angle throw and connect every time. You know, when you get to a certain level, you can not only be entertaining as functional combat athlete, like I said, you, you actually can win with that type of style. Yes, a, a true greatness is the ability to express yourself artistically, organically in the moment through whatever medium, and you see it with great fighters, and that's what he was able to do here. And he's still coming into his prime. Yeah, because after getting the revenge on Ament, he went on to beat John Lems, who outweighed him by 25 pounds, which is a lot, and still lost those falls to Pesic in less than five minutes combined. So again, skill level, not even close. You have a guy who you outweigh by 25 pounds, and he puts you away twice inside five minutes. That really makes you have to uh, reconsider what you're doing with your life. Yeah, or just imagine, uh, you know, give credit to where credit's due, that you're in there with somebody truly exceptional that is capable beyond their years and experience. Then on September 14th, 1916, he took on the former middleweight champion of the world, Chris Jordan, at the Shelton Opera House. Jordan was known for just being lightning fast, both on his feet and on the mat, just a really great shoot, scramble type of athlete. And full page ads were taken out in the local papers, announcing it as the biggest event of the season. And over 400 people showed up to watch it go down. The two men went at it nonstop for two hours. With Pesic being on the offensive for most of it, Jordan using the old veteran techniques like scrambling to the ropes whenever he was almost caught in a hold, forcing the ref to restart the match, and at the two-hour mark, the match was stopped and declared a draw, though the disappointed obvi audience obviously would have stayed all night to see a finish. That is something uh, we keep seeing in this type of story where it's guys go at it for two fucking hours to a draw. Maybe it's it's determined by the rules. Maybe the venue owner wanted to go home. Yeah. But either way, I, it, it's crazy to see people in these days paying good money to watch an action-packed match with no conclusion and then going home very late at night going... That was money well spent. Yeah, and I got to imagine this particular matchup was probably like when you think about things in terms of modern, like, you know, work rate and sort of like, you know, amount of, of techniques and, and takedown attempts per minute. That we're, he's in there with the middleweight champ. This is probably a lot more action than your typical heavyweight matchup. And it gave him a chance. Two hours with both guys' foot on the gas pedal. That would be an exhilarating thing to see for sure. Oh no! I, like I, I would have, I, I would pay extra money to see it because time travel would totally, be required. Yes, so yes. an extra ten bucks, an extra ten bucks to watch yeah. this happen. That's all I'm paying for time travel. I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to be stingy on this. Yes, I think they have a discount program coming soon for that. And speaking of ten bucks, the paydays for this guy were also moving up with the next level of his career. After the draw, he went on to beat Grover Yoder and Kearney, taking only 15 minutes to pin his opponent and earn $950, which is a shitload of money in those days. Yeah, that's like pretty much 100 years ago, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's over 100 years ago. Yeah, this is a, that's a tremendous amount. That's a great night at the office, man. 15 minutes of work for 900 plus in your pocket? I'll take that now. 
up next after this, so he's he's you know he's he's gone from the farm, he's gone to the the upstairs bar, he's gone to the opera house, he's gone to these bigger matches. This is a guy who's still very very young, and now he's starting to get into those uh, those matches that result in the crazy fucking stories that we love so goddamn much. And who boy, strap in for this one, because at this point it was the biggest match in his career, and it was against Jack Taylor. Taylor had wins against most of the local top catch wrestlers like Charles Cutler and Ad Santel, and his only loss was at the hands of Joe Stetcher, the reigning champion. The crowd was at capacity, and it's estimated that $5,000 was being bet on the match, and it was about to start. Taylor had agreed to a handicap match, having to throw Pesek twice in an hour for $200, and if he failed to do so, Pesek and Taylor would wrestle to a finish for the gate money. Think about what the gate money for 400 people must look like. If you're going for 100% of the gate, you're going for 100% of the effort. Oh, yeah, wait, so he has to, like, basically, if he can hold off two takedowns for an hour, then it turns into a first fall wins for the, all the gate? Yeah, it's, it was a weird setup, but that's we saw that so Whoa! much in those days where, you know, because Taylor was, you know, the bigger name. He was the, the star, and he agreed to a handicap match where he had to beat Pesic twice in an hour. And if he couldn't do that, well, then they went to a single fall for 100% of the door. Take my money right now. That is a hell of an angle, and I am so impressed right now. My jaw is literally dropped. And the referee, always an important position, was the lightweight champion, Owen Daly. And after 15 minutes of action, Daly awarded Taylor a fall while Pesek's shoulders were clearly off the mat. The crowd went apeshit and booed the decision because... Keep in mind, you know, even though this was a time of works, even if it was a work, you got to make it look clean. So this is an addition to pissing people off because they might just be seeing a bad call. It now makes them think they might be seeing a work and they're betting on it and now they're angry. Yeah, and there's definitely a larger possibility of a... Of a uh the fix being in when there's money on the line like that. That that's that reeks of a what's the word? I think there's a word for it. Oh right, I forgot. Yes, hippodrome. Yes, that's what it is. But unfortunately yes. for uh, for the people who wanted to make some money, that was not the case this time. Coming out for the second fall, Pesek was fired up, but still cool-headed about his strategy. He shrugged off everything Taylor was throwing at him, breaking every hold, stuffing every throw, and with 15 minutes remaining, and Pesek clearly about to win the handicap match by lasting the, uh, the full time limit without two throws, Taylor just started making financial offers to Pesek, out loud in front of everyone. As it became obvious that Pesic wasn't going to throw the match, the referee stopped the match and declared all bets were off because it was an obvious setup. So this guy, seeing he's not going to lose, doesn't want to lose a proper match, just starts in front of everyone offering the guy 50 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever the fuck, to just take the fall so they can go home. Dude, what in the name of the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase stole this guy's gimmick! That is tremendous! And if you're wondering, why did the referee hear this, <coughs> stop the match, declare it all bets off, and say the fix was in? Well, it was discovered that the referee, Daly, was holding most of the wager money and had himself bet heavily on Jack Taylor. You don't <laughs> say. And this is why there are athletic commissions. Now. Yes, and he probably figured that's the only way he's getting out of that ring with his neck. 
Oh yeah, because after Daly was exposed, uh, Daly was forced to return everyone's bets, and he had to be escorted out of the opera house by the police for his own protection. Oof. Jack Taylor yeah. ran out, hopped in a waiting car, and sped off to Kearney, just as the crowd emptied out onto the street with rage in their eyes and murder in their hearts over what they had witnessed and dealt with. <laughs> yeah, and you know what, though? I will say this, like, in a backwards, kind of unintentional way, that's the kind of shit that's going to make Pesic a legend and a hero because he was the guy they were trying to screw, and he screwed them over. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he got the money back for the people. Yeah, the, even though he was a, an hot up-and-coming uh, you know, star at the time in the region, they saw him as the mark that they were going to work around with, to the point where the referee had fucking money on Dude. it, thinking they probably could do something where they could make it a little smoother on yeah, the uh, scrimmage job if needed they, but instead Pesic was just too good to too get screwed. damn good to get the screw to take the fall in the screw job man that is some shit brother you know imagine if Bret Hart had kicked out of out of the sharpshooter before it got locked in and not given the Shawn Michaels a clean opportunity to score the fall that's what we're talking about here and that's some shit yeah and, and that's why I love that it's like they pulled this off so poorly that the referee had to be escorted out for a safety yeah the, the other wrestler ran out and jumped in a waiting car and sped off out of town I, uh, I, I picture the audience being kind of like that Simpsons episode where the, the Shelbyville people are running out in the street. Shake your fist harder, boy! Yeah, <laughs> I just... That is tremendous. And they should have done their homework before they tried to double-cross them. And after this kerfluffle, shall we say... Pesic went to train with the Stetcher brothers for a few weeks. The Pesics and the Stetchers got along very well, both coming from hard-working bohemian families in Nebraska. The Stetchers even saw a great amount of promise in John's younger brother, Charlie. And in late 1916, Pesic got his rematch with Chris Jordan with two straight falls in less than 18 minutes. So that really shows how much this guy is advancing, because not barely a year ago, he went to a two-hour draw with this guy. Now, he goes in there and puts him away twice in 18 minutes without giving up a fall at the Ravina Opera House. Jordan made a statement about how much Pesic had improved since their two-hour draw the year before, while the stink of the Jack Taylor match had been kind of finally kind of gotten off of him, and he had a big win in the bag. Pesic had taken his career to another level. He also took his self-promoting skills up a notch with demonstrations like busting open a sack of grain with a leg scissor hold, a trick he borrowed from his, his pal uh, Joe Stetcher, crush a goblet in his hand, which I picture like that scene in Army of Darkness where Ash totally. makes his, his robot hand, it crushes a goblet and says groovy. groovy. And I, I certainly hope that is what he said. Or pull a plow with his teeth and straighten a horseshoe and he would allow a fully loaded car to drive over his midsection. If this isn't show business, if this still isn't the carnival uh, spirit alive and well, I don't know what is. Yeah, I think you just did two events out of a circus uh, freak side so and at least one or two strongman events that you just laid out right there. I mean, this guy is just hitting every trade. I bet the hipsters back then, this was like the guy that was cool before he was cool, you know? And then, and then I kind of have to wonder, like, what, what was gimmicked in there? Like, how did they gimmick the goblet? Did they just, like, punch some holes in it so it, like, had a... Uh, and he had his thumb over the, uh, the hole so fluid wouldn't leak out? I, dude, I mean... Maybe there's a trick to it, or maybe he's just, like, internalized that rage, and he's, you know, tapped into the thing. Like, you know how in 
in uh, when they burn Bruce Wayne's house in uh, the first Dark Knight, and he's like, "Why do you do all those push-ups? You can't get that log off." It's like he's got that times. I gotta save my dad's broken neck. Get the log off. So I'm sure you could tap into that. Just crush the goblet. Possibly. I just I always see things from that from the angle of of it being it being a scam, a carnival uh, trick. Because keep in mind, if you're gonna do this in front of the press, you want to be 100% sure shit's gonna work. That's so, true. So I just kind of assume things are gimmicks. That's they're, true. They're to work because if you try doing this in front of the reporters and you fuck it up, well, what's that headline going to be the That's next tr- day? That's Which, true. Which, uh, once again, proves that, at least in these days, pro wrestlers were just, uh, you know, like, the, they, they would have been faith healers if they didn't know how to kick ass. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and again, it's, it's, it shows the start of the blend of the showbiz side into his game as well. Yeah, because these were crazy training demonstrations. He would again. He would pull a plow like a horse, or ride a bike with a rope around the bumper of the car and the other end around his neck. Then, while both were in motion, he would pull back against the tension of the rope to develop neck strength. And yes, that's as dangerous as it fucking sounds. Because one time the bike broke and he wiped out and barely got the rope around his neck before he was dragged to his death behind a Model T or whatever the fuck they were driving in those days. Yeah, that is some crazy uh, CrossFit shit if I ever heard it. Some carny ass strongman MacGyver CrossFit. Yeah, like all the like the training stuff is always so bananas. It's like the story about uh, uh, Matsuda who would pull like go by the river and pull a boat with a rope along the river. Where it's like, well, I guess there wasn't a twenty four hour fitness nearby, but uh, yeah, that seems like okay. How am I going to get strong? Got it. I'm going to do this crazy fucking thing. Is there science behind it? Could be. Maybe wizardry. Not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only time clearly that that has ever actually worked is in Over the Top. <laughs> <laughs> so whether it was these crazy exhibitions of strength that he's giving to the media, he's being very media savvy, or whether it's on merit because he is a legitimate badass coming up hot through the ranks, the challenges were coming in from all over the country. And his manager, Martin Slattery, did his best to secure as many high-profile, high-paying matches as possible. He would also hype them up by reading the telegraph challenges aloud to the crowd before matches. There were even challenges shouted from the stands. So he's doing showbiz big time here, where before the matches, he pulls out the prints of the telegraphs and reading these challenges of these people who think they can beat my my man. That's pretty dope, actually. I like that. That's oh, a great inflammatory uh, it's very promotional attack. Yeah, totally. Yes. Did we see? I just want to know, did he go by the gift of uh, Sergeant Slatterdy? Oh, he, he should have. He, he should have. He, he should have done something. Oh, man. But this is, this is a bit before those days. Maybe I know, but that's all I can think about every time we say it. And if I don't say the joke, then I feel like I'm going to be mad when I listen to this back. So. Yeah, and I do honestly, now I don't think about it, it really is like a Paul Heyman, Brock Lesnar type of relationship yeah. where you have a dude who's a legit badass and a very showbiz businessman who knew how to fire things up handling the business side of things. And these matches and offers started pouring in. And in 1917, Slattery and Earl Caddick's manager, Ray Page, reached an agreement for a match. And this was huge. The man of a thousand holes was the 185 pound champion and one of the most dangerous wrestlers in America at that time. You probably remember his battle with Stetcher from a few episodes back. 
Paddock claimed he could throw Pesek twice in an hour, so it was a handicap match for $400. The press called it the biggest match ever in Western Nebraska, which is weirdly specific, but by being weirdly specific, I don't think they could be wrong. Yeah, they probably that probably made it true. Although I have to say, why are you gunning for my man in the two, two fall gimmick proposal? He is undefeated in snuffing out the uh, the handicap victory there. I think I think it's business related, which we'll kind of see here in a little bit. Um, at the Hostetler Opera House on January 18th, 1917, Caddick tried as many of his 1,000 holds as possible, but couldn't pull off a single one. <laughs> Pesek would break them with his superior strength or make his way to the ropes. Caddick never had Pesek in danger, and at the halfway point, it was clear that Caddick couldn't, you know, couldn't pull it off. So Pesek started smiling at the crowd and knowing he had it in the bag. And at the end of the match, Caddick put over Pesek as being the best he's ever faced and said he'd like to wrestle him to a finish. Pesek was a man who hated any kind of worked match, but you know what this feels like to me? A hippodrome! You know, talk about the carny trick of all carny tricks, the handicap match to hype a match to the finish. And according to legend, the Pesek camp had made a fortune betting on their man while Caddick's team lost their asses and had to borrow money to catch a train home. Which is just, I feel, is just storytelling right there. Because, yeah, that's because yeah. we've seen this so many times with so many people over decades at this point, where if you want to hype a match to the finish, a proper two out of three, you do it like this. You have the bigger star do a, a handicap match. He doesn't lose. He can't lose. But he makes the other guy look so good by uh, by not losing in this handicap style that it means everything but nothing at the same time. Yeah, and it doubles as a ability to get a feel of this competitor and this potential threat firsthand and you get to get in there and mix it up and see if this guy might actually have your number without the stakes of an actual loss on the line. So it's a good sort of like safety measure to get a first taste at these up and comers. So it makes sense that that he's getting these bookings, but I don't I don't I haven't smelled him being in, being in on too many of these hippie drums yet, daddy. Yeah, I feel like you know, like a lot of these farm kids it is it's it's shoot until the money's good enough. Yes. I feel like it's always going to be the story. It's, exactly. It's a you're going to be the shooter until the right amount of money appears on the table, and then totally. you go, huh? Well, do I have to look bad? Let's fucking do this because yeah, we we saw this constantly from Muldoon to Lewis to Gotch. Gotch was the master of this, where you 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 win so many times, you need to make the big money drama. So you do the handicap match. Nobody walks away looking bad, and now everybody wants to see the real thing. It's Carney Wrestling 101. It's a beautiful thing. It's a dirty thing, and it just makes my my heart warm through and through. Yes, and it, it truly means in this era that you have arrived. Because when they're when they're starting to, to figure you in, as they say, he's starting to have to include him in on the work if the work is going to be done. Because when you are the, that guy and you can, you might not be the top guy, but you can beat the top guy. So you are only going you're going to have the opportunity to work with the top guy. That is a very financially uh, prime position. And 
when you start getting to that level, yeah, it's like the finances are better, the star power is better, but one thing you don't get is for things to be any easier. They never do. Because he was now up against Bob Manigoff moving forward. That was his next big match. Manigoff was the man who was in the ring with Frank Gotch when Gotch had his freak slip that broke his leg and ended his career. Manigoff was an Armenian-born wrestler who often was promoted as yet another terrible Turk. And while that was technically true with the geographic borders at the time, because Armenia was part of the Ottoman Empire until it collapsed after World War I, if you know anything about how the Armenians were treated by the Ottoman Empire, you would know why this is very discomforting. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that is that is one of the uh, worst genocides and atrocities that's been talked about. I actually have a close personal friend I grew up with that's Armenian, so I actually have heard some of that. But yeah, that is... Really cold that they made him do the the terrible Turk gimmick. Yeah, it's like you know, hairy shoulders, unibrow. You're a Turk now. Go wrestle, yeah, buddy. It's like it's like oh, you're a Jew from Germany. You're a Nazi. Yep. There's a yeah. There was just there was so much. There were there were very few slots culturally you could fit into, and that's where he got dropped. <laughs> that's off. a rough. That's a rough roll. Rough draw on the bill, bro. And. The match took place at the Ravina Opera House on January 30th. Manigoff started out getting rough, as they would say, and Pesek had no problem doing the same. You know, a lot of, you know, little short punches, a lot of, you know, kind of face palms uh, turning into palm strikes, kind of right out of the gate. They're not exactly being, uh, being sweet to one another, but they were both going back and forth and the ref was allowing it. But for Pesek, strategy was always on his mind and Pesek toyed with Manigoff feeling him out and frustrating his Armenian foe, and at the end of the first hour, you heard me right, the first hour, Manigoff was clearly worn down as any reasonable human being would be, and Pesek decided to turn up the heat. He secured a Stetcher-esque leg scissor and combined it with a hammer hold that dislocated Manigoff's shoulder, Ugh. and the now one-armed Armenian couldn't continue. Oof. The match was ended, and Manigoff was classy enough to praise Pesek as Stetcher's potential equal. Yeah, so I mean, that's a move where after an hour, like imagine being like the type of like, you know, cardio machine, the type of strategy guy where you go, okay, I'm going to wear him down for an hour and then I'm really going to go after him. Yeah, then I'm going to turn on the juice. That is somebody that is uh, probably not very fun to get in an argument with because oh, yeah. they're not going to drop it. Yeah, because as, as we talked a lot about in the uh, Stetcher episode, that leg scissor is very close to you know the guard. It's almost like a mount from the side or a little bit of a back ride with your ankles crossed, so you're squeezing them. And then typically you get kind of like a half, uh, you know, a half or a quarter Nelson, and you're pressing the neck down, so you're compacting the the ribs and the abdomen and you know the diaphragm. So you take your wind away, and kind of from the description, he had that back ride and ended up with his arm behind, and he turned it into a hammer lock, almost like a Kimura from Guard, but off the side. Essentially, but, yeah. But use that to turn him into a pin. And shoulder popped uh, during that turn. And yeah, there's not a whole lot you can do. And even if you could do it after an hour, so it's like, oh, I'm exhausted and now my shoulder's dislocated. Um, if anybody sees my mom, I could use a kiss on the forehead and be told that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, but everything's not going to be okay because your chicken wing ain't going to have its proper chicken swing anymore because we're talking about the type of injury that's probably gonna need cadaver replacements, and this is way before that time, Daddy. You are fucked. And that's the danger of 
not having a submission finish and having a referee smart to the nuances of submission grappling and having it just be a pinfall. Because depending on where that position was between the two of them, that leg sixer and, and ha hammer lock, as they described it, that's essentially could be a rolling Kimura. The guy could have been trying to put his shoulders on the mat and couldn't get there fast enough. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of little X factors. We weren't there, but we've both, but that's been in not, those, yeah. Yeah, we've both been in those dumb positions where it's like, I think I'm getting out of this. Ow, 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 ow. Yep. And, yeah, so he's got another big win under his belt. People are comparing him to Joe Stetcher. And speaking of Stetcher, this is when Pesek headed back to Dodge to help Joe Stetcher prepare for his match against Charlie Peters. And these guys are friends. These guys are training partners. These guys come from the same culture. They've kind of borrowed from each other stylistically. Uh, but now everybody's starting to talk about when should they face off against one another. And that was starting to become the talk of the town, the talk of Nebraska, the talk of the wrestling scene. When are these two men finally going to face off? Because that's where Pesic has finally gotten to. And will that match happen? What will happen if it happens? What it happens? Should it happen? Well, we're going to have to talk about that next time because gosh darn it, this is going to be a two-parter. We have told, we've laid the groundwork. We have talked about young John Pesic, the Tiger Man of Nebraska, coming up through the ranks. Well, what happens when you finally hit that point where you've got to be a star, you've got to be a champion, or you've got to pack it up and go home? You get an episode two of Pro Wrestling History Nerds, and that was one hell of a cliffhanger, old chap. Oh, I do what I can. So, everybody, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to us ramble with all this uh, crazy uh, storytelling that we love so much. Make sure you, you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our Instagram. I like to find the old articles, the old, uh, uh, the old, the old, the old photographs. I found. I recently posted one. I, did you see the one about the the about the Jim Londos not wanting to wrestle a guy because he was covered with boils whereas, oh, yeah. <laughs> whereas like lost by forfeiture because the guy's skin was too gross to touch wrestling history is weird and we like to make it even weirder so we'll see you back in a couple of weeks to finish this part of john pesic's life and career for chago bronson i'm nick gossert talk to you next time folks yeah beep beep from the hippodrome express cut print martini capital episode <laughs>